Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon the generous financial contributions of our listeners in order to continue bringing Fighting for the Faith to you. Uh, Would you please uh, support Fighting for the Faith financially by joining our crew or sending in a donation to uh, support us financially? You can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. Click on the Join Our Crew button. That's a mere $6.95 a month. Or if you'd like to make a flat contribution, you can do so by clicking on the Donate button or making your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and sending it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Thank you for your support. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Wednesday, February 9th, 2011. Valentine's Day is around the corner. You can tell if you're a Farmville player. (laughs) Yeah, don't get me started on the whole Farmville thing. I'm beginning to think that... uh, Farmville is the imaginary place where I disappear to when I'm tired <laughs> or now. <laughs> I, I usually farm while listening to bad sermons. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Roseboro. I'm your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, and to compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. It's all about giving you some good critical thinking skills as it pertains to the claims being made out there about Jesus Christ, God, the gospel, and how men are saved. Why? Because this stuff really does matter. This life that we experience here is really temporary. We're sojourners through planet Earth. Um, In in fact, I'm pretty much convinced that uh, the vast majority of people who've ever lived are dead. And, uh, you know, the temporary nature of this life points us to the fact that there's really something else that's more important than the here and the now. And that is the world to come. And this is what we learn about in Scripture. But the reality of the matter is, is that the world to come is not populated by people uh, who, well... um, get there on their own righteousness if they if you would the citizens of the heavenly kingdom the king the citizens of the kingdom of christ are those who have been forgiven those who have been granted repentance and the forgiveness of sins in jesus name and uh, and we as the church have been given very specific orders by jesus christ and those orders are found in luke chapter 24 where jesus says at the tail end of the of the, of the passage that you know that all authority has been given to him and that we are to go and proclaim repentance and the forgiveness of sins in his name to all nations, all nations. That includes 21st century uh, America, Canada, New, uh, Great Britain, uh, Saudi Arabia, South Africa, New Zealand, and, and the like. But unfortunately, there's um, a lot of mischief uh, being thrown around the church today. And uh, so uh, we're in need of some, well, corrective work. And uh, the 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 church has been warned that in the last days there'll be false Christ, false prophets, false teachers, wolves in sheep's clothing, people who are not teaching things in accordance with sound doctrine. In other words, the church here, the, during this sojourning period, is to be the church that's militant, the church that's diligent, the, ter- the church that is 
doing uh, what is necessary to guard the sheep of Christ and to protect and defend the biblical gospel so that it can continue to be proclaimed unhindered to all nations, even the nations of our day. So uh, because there's so many weird things being kicked around out there, well, we have to cover them here at Fighting for the Faith. And this is an education program. It's an education program that there's some entertainment aspects to it. There are times when we try to have some fun and we're funny. But the other part of it is, is that uh, the, the what we do here is deadly serious, and uh, even you know the some of the more bizarre things that we cover here at Fighting for the Faith. Even though it might make your head spin, you might end up doing projectile vomiting. You might be pounding your head on the desk. You might be you know sticking your keyboard through your nose as a result of listening to these bizarre things that are said here. But keep in mind, these things are done not so that you pound your head or whatever, but to help guard your mind and guard your faith, and so to make you ultimately more effective in proclaiming the gospel yourself, identifying errors from the pulpit, and help people see the thing that keeps constantly getting covered up by all this false teaching. And what is that thing that constantly gets covered up? the good news of Christ and him crucified for our sins and the proclamation of repentance and the forgiveness of sins. Christ and him crucified and risen again on the third day for our justification. That's the thing that always seems to get, you know, lost in the mix. Always, 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 always. So, yeah, all the crazy things going on here just pretty much ensures that I'm going to have job security until I fall over dead. It'll happen someday if Christ doesn't return soon. And I'm kind of hoping that he does because uh, the whole idea of dying just doesn't sound like it would be all that fun. Now, if you've experienced it and you thought it was a great experience for you, email me. And Well, actually, if you have, then you probably can't. Anyway, you know what I'm saying. All right, let's talk about what we're going to talk about on today's edition of Fighting for the Faith. Got some, well, thought I'd start off a little bit, well, how, how do I put this? I'll, I thought I'd start off with something easy to uh, begin today, and uh, and that requires me to go to, well, here, you know, let's, um, rather than talk about it, let's just play the audio from the video and see if this makes any sense to you. If your name is John, and you want to find out when your feast day is celebrated in the Catholic Church, there's an app for that. And if you have a special patron saint that you turn to in times of trouble and want to light a candle for him, there's an app for that. If you've left your breviary at home and want to listen and pray the Liturgy of the Hours with your iPhone, there's an app for that. And there's even an app if you want to pray it in Latin. If it's been a while since you've been to confession and you need a little help with an examination of conscience, there's an app for that. If you're traveling and need to figure out where you can go to Mass, there's an app for that. And if you're looking for great quality Catholic audio and video productions, there's a place for that too. Well, there you go. Uh, yeah, that's kind of the uh, the teaser here. But apparently, uh, some folks uh, that are Roman Catholics have decided to put together not just you know one app, but there's several different Catholic apps out there, and the latest latest of which is supposed to help you with uh, well going to confession. Let's uh, listen into the road show and uh, you know uh, see what Here's you think. Here's a question to ponder over your morning coffee: Do you need to confess your sins? 
Well, there's an app for that. The Catholic Church is supporting a new iPhone application that's designed to encourage lapsed followers back to the faith. Alex DePrado has the details. Just got to ask the (laughs) the question. So, I mean, according to this gal here on the Fox uh, affiliate there in Providence, Rhode Island, um, the the general purpose behind the app is to help lapsed followers come back to church through a confession app. This is unlike any uh, church growth scheme that I've heard of, but let's continue. Going to confession, there is an app for that. So yeah, I have it on here. Father Michael Najem showed us the app on his iPhone. The app tailors questions based on age and gender. They include, have I been unethical in my business dealings? Have I stolen or lied? Have I not paid my taxes? This is exactly what the church needs to be doing. We need to be using technology to bring the gospel to people. Father Michael... Okay, now I'm going to pause there. You know... As convoluted as all of this might seem on the surface, there is some merit to this thing. And I know you're thinking, really? Well, listen, here, I I don't have a problem with people examining their lives in light of the Ten Commandments. That's exactly one of the things that we ought to be doing, whether you're a Roman Catholic, Protestant, or whatever. And, uh, And, you know, the fact of the matter is that there's a lot of Protestants out there who, you know, who claims superior doctrine to the Roman Catholic Church, and you know, rightfully so, the Roman Catholic Church has anathematized the gospel. If you read the canons of the Council of Trent, well, the, the biblical gospel has been anathematized. If you believe it, well, then you're anathema. Um, but um, <clears throat> that all being aside here, um, it, it is the right use of the law to examine your life in light of it. And from what I can see from this app, I don't have it, and I just can't bring myself to cough up the two bucks necessary to own it because I would never use this particular app, but uh, is to is this idea of, of examining your life in light of the Ten Commandments, and and from the looks of it, there's some practical questions, you know, regarding whether you know whether or not you've the the, the Bible says thou shalt not steal. What have you been ethical in your business dealing? Have you paid your taxes? Have you have you told state taken? Things from your employer, you know, things of that nature. These are perfect. This is a perfectly fine and good use of God's law. Yeah, the problem with Roman Catholic confession comes in regarding the solution to all of us who've broken the Ten Commandments. We'll get to that. Let's uh, play a little bit more of this audio, and I'll uh, circle around and talk about that for a second. Here we go. Cautions the app doesn't replace confession, but should rather prepare people for confession. It helps us to see the areas in our lives where we need healing. Basically, it helps us to see the areas of our lives that we need to confess. The app then lists the sins a user checks off. Father Michael says the iPhone could even be brought to a priest so people remember what they need to confess. At some point now in my ministry, People are going to be coming to me with their iPhone. Ooh, this isn't good. I've been pretty bad. Ten Hail Marys, my penance, Michaela. Not good. So, a... yeah, there. see, that's kind of the issue. Okay, so let, let's kind of tease this apart a little bit here. Um, examining your life in light of the Ten Commandments, a good thing to do. That's actually a very good thing to do, because when you do that, you realize, yeesh, yeah, i got a problem. I've got a huge, ginormous Really, 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 really big problem. 
and that is I've broken all of these commandments. And as as uh, Jesus' brother James rightfully points out, if you've broken one of the commandments, you're guilty of breaking them all. Um, but notice the solution. Uh, you know, kind of tongue in cheek here. This uh, gal from the Fox affiliate in Providence, Rhode Island, said, uh, "Yeah, oh, ooh, ooh, I've been bad. I have you know ten Hail Marys penance." See, that's the problem, isn't it? It's not the examining your life in light of the Ten Commandments or even confessing that you're a sinner. The solution isn't Christ and him crucified for our sins. The solution is your satisfactions, your penance, the things that you do to, well, make up for the wrongs that you've done. You see, the biblical gospel teaches you that there's nothing that you can do to make up for the wrongs that you've done. There's, you can't pay the debt that you owe to God or to anyone else. And therefore, the only solution is Christ and him crucified for our sins. Praying 10 Hail Marys? I mean, go ahead and knock yourself out if you want. Pray the 10 Hail Marys. It'll be about as useful as uh, stripping down naked, grabbing some chicken feathers, and and dancing around oak trees, you know, while waving those chicken feathers. It's not going to do anything. Yeah, 10 Hail Marys earns you nothing before God. 10 Hail Marys doesn't satisfy anything regarding God's wrath towards you because of the sins that you've committed. Uh, Ten Hail Marys does not satisfy the justice of God. That's just a man-made thing. What does satisfy God's justice and God's wrath? The shed blood of Christ. And hearing the absolution. Because remember, what does John say? If we say we are without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, God, who is faithful and just, will forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's what the scriptures say. Notice John didn't say something, if you confess your sin and do ten Hail Marys, then Christ will forgive you of your sins. That's just absurdity. So what's what the, one of the primary problems, one of the big problems with the Catholic Church, is that its solution to sin, well, it's up to you to solve that problem. Christ's blood really doesn't cover everything. You've got to make satisfaction for the rest. That's really the problem. And uh, the uh, the app, you know, great idea, examining your life in light of the Ten Commandments. A good idea, documenting where you've gone wrong. But keep in mind, it's only Christ and him crucified for our sins that can make you stand right before God. No Hail Marys, no penance, no satisfactions done on your part can earn you anything. Not even an anthill towards paying the debt that you owe God because of your sin. <sighs> sad, 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 sad. Yeah, it's apparently making all the news, but, uh, you know, there it is. All right, moving along here. Yes, that music can mean only one thing. We're going to be hearing from somebody from the Patricia King Extreme Prophetic Gang. Yes, that's right. And well, you know, there's a, <laughs> we're going to be hearing today right now from uh, none other than Katie Sousa. Katie Sousa of the Extreme Prophetic um, Patricia King Gang. Um, and the name of this particular video is entitled uh, Healing, um, Healing from the Past. Healing from the Past. And I got to tell you, this one's just a little bit on the weird side. Hey, so you know, here, I'll let Katie Sousa explain. Here we go. I'm-
my name is Katie Suze. I'm with Expected Ministries, and I have a word for a lot of people out there. All right. Today, the Lord says that he wants to go back in time to a place in time. The, the what? The, the Lord wants to do what? Hang on a second here. Um, let's, let me see. Did I hear this Hi, right? Hi, my name is Katie Suze. I'm with Expected Ministries, and I have a word for a lot of people out there. Yeah, yeah. Today, the Lord says that he wants to go back in time. Oh, boy. I, I don't even know what to do with this. Maybe we need a musical interlude at this moment. Hang on. I, I feel a musical interlude coming. enough of that <sighs> so uh, you know what hang on a second here uh, as i was playing that musical interlude it, it just came to my mind that if i'm going to play this uh, video from katie Sousa claiming that jesus wants to go back in time um that maybe the appropriate thing to do would be to uh, play this uh, video uh with the back to the future well theme music playing in the background. I just think that that would be appropriate. Let's let's see how that combination works. Here, here we go. Let's try this again. Hi, my name is Katie Suze. I'm with Expected Ministries, and I have a word for a lot of people out there. Today, the Lord says that he wants to go back in time to a place in time where an event has happened that has deeply wounded you. So right now, let me help you do that right now. I think this is working. I just speak right now to that place. I just speak right now and I pierce too, through to that place. She pierces. In your soul where you are extremely wounded. Right, right now, she's piercing right back in time into your soul now a command that that a piercing happens a breakthrough happens where we can get to that place that yeah I, I don't want one of those piercings those hurt that's covered with calluses and scabs and we can go back right now right now yeah wow she even has sound effects now right now in time right now in jesus name to cause an opening to happen 
So where the glory of God and his, the light of Jesus Christ can go in his blood, can go into that place right now. At 88 miles an hour. Now, that deep wound right now and be filled. I command that deep wound to be filled right now. I command that deep wound to be filled right now. Right now. Right now. Right now. Back in time. With the presence of Jesus. With the presence of Jesus. With his blood. With his glory and his light. A car accident. I heard. A mother dying. Right now I heard that too. Right now. Fathers passing away. Right now in Jesus name. Right now. Someone had deep boyfriend issues that deeply wounded you. Yeah, if you have deep boyfriend issues, you're, you can go back and Jesus is going to go back in time and fix that all up right now. Right now, a child, I, I saw a death of a child during childbirth. Right now, it was, it was deeply wounded someone. Abortions have deeply wounded people. Right now, Jesus is going to all those places. Right now, he's going deeper. He's going deeper and deeper to all those places right now. Right now to help you, to help you recover from that painful event right now. Whew, Jesus, right now, I feel it. The glory just hit my back. It's happening right now. Just to, it, use your faith to pull on it because you're getting healing right now. You want me to use my faith to do what? To pull on it? Uh, what does my faith grab onto exactly? Is Are there like Back to the Future handlebars? Is there a Back to the Future rope? What? I'm a bit confused. I, what is my faith supposed to grab onto here again? What? Healing right now. Use your face. Blow on it right now. I'm supposed to blow on it? And blowing on it will help my faith? What? Pull on it right now. Jesus is going in. We're almost there. Well, I'm glad we're almost there because this is... <clears throat> on it right now. Jesus is going to that deep place with his glory, with his light, with his blood, with his presence. It's Jesus. It's Jesus, his presence filling you. Filling you right now. Are you sure that's Jesus? I, I, I don't recognize him. He, he looks funny. What's with the, the, the big snout and the, and, the, and the sharp pointy teeth? Filling you right now. Whew, I feel the electricity just flew down my arm towards the camera. Right there. Jesus' name. Whew. In the name of Jesus right now. Uh, apparently that does something spiritual. I don't know what it does, but shah. There, it would just, there, just like, shah, yeah, whatever. Shah, in the name of Jesus right now, there it is. There, what is? Yet notice that the solution for sin here is apparently her claiming that Jesus went back in time to, yeah, because you got to remember that back in time, you know, like, yeah, let's kind of go way, way back, you know, to like 2,000 years ago, back in time kind of time framework. Um, a little less than that, but you know, Jesus was bleeding and dying for our sins. Yeah, Jesus doesn't need to go back in time into me to, you know, kind of, shah, you know, to make things happen. Yeah, this is just an absurd, ridiculous, so-called solution for dealing with our sinful problem. In Jesus' name, just receive that healing. Just receive that healing, the mercy and the love of God right now upon your soul. Just now, I decree. You're being healed of horrific past events right now. I've I got so much glory burning on my neck right now. The presence. If you have glory burning on your neck, you might want to get the doctor to look at that. I mean, you, the last thing you need is the third degree glory burn. The presence is being released right now. Receive it. Touch, touch your television. Touch your computer screen. Receive it right now. In Jesus' name. In the name of Jesus.
Yeah. <laughs> oh, that worked way better than I thought it would. We're up on our first break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter, my name there, pirate Christian. Whew, we'll be right back. We don't need to rethink Christianity. We need to rediscover it. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> Warning, fighting for the faith can be dangerous to your health. Listening with caution is strongly urged while doing any of the following activities. Operating heavy, deadly equipment, playing Farmville, or any time-wasting, brain-numbing activity. For sudden awakening at the sound of a particularly stupid isogetical statement could cause neck strain. Drinking liquids, drinking hot liquids, having liquids too nearby, not having any liquids nearby. The following medical conditions have been known to occur while listening to Fighting for the Faith. Cranial keyboard embedment syndrome, sinu-nasal liquid spewment disorder, steering wheel pounding clenched fist strain, continual gaping dry mouth atosis, and frustrative disbelief brain explosion. Please take proper precautions. Drinking straws, padding, and duct tape are recommended. Keep more of your money in your pocket. Hi, Chris Roseborough here. If you're planning to travel anytime in the near future, then don't pay more for airfare, hotel rooms, or rental cars than you need to. Longtime Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheap O Air can save you a Tijuana taxi load of money on all of your travel needs. Plus, Cheap O Air has a seasonal promotional code for all of our listeners that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheapo Air's already low prices. Visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, and then click on the banner, and then book your travel today. Again, that's piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. Warning, the people from Extreme Prophetic are really not actually hearing from the Biblical Holy Spirit. They might be hearing from a spirit, but ahem, not the Holy One. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you, your generous gifts, financial contributions, in order to continue bringing this important radio outreach to you as well as to the world. If you don't already partner with us financially, uh, this is a good time to do so. And the way you do so is by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see two friendly yellow buttons. One says Donate. The other says Join Our Crew. When you join our crew, 
you're signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 every month to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. Of course, if you would like to specify the amount, you can make a one-time contribution by just clicking on the Donate button or... You can make your gift payable too, Fighting for the Faith, and then send that along to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Yeah, oh, man. Yeah, let's, well, let's talk about what we're going to talk about for the rest of the program here today. Um, I want to take a look at a um, an article from the CNN uh, uh, Belief blog. Uh, written by Jennifer Wright, uh, K-N-U-S, Nust, uh, is, anyway, um, basically talking about, it says, my take the Bible's surprisingly mixed message on sexuality. According to uh, liberals, you know, the Bible has a surprisingly mixed message regarding sexuality. Dr. Albert Muller has responded to that. We're going to take a look at that. Uh, before we do that, I'm going to take a look at an article in the Huffington Post that talks about uh, the uh, the new round, the new crop of faith-based advisors for the Obama administration. <laughs> Boy, do you hear who's, who his spiritual advisors are now? Boy, it's just, it may, may want to cause you to drop to your knees and pray for President Obama because, yeah, this is just uh, no good, no good. But, uh, at, but then in hour number two today, we're going to be doing a sermon review uh, from a sermon delivered by Dr. Albert Muller during... Um, well, it was Reformation Sunday of last year, of 2010, so November of last year. And I know it's it's out of sync, but you know, I'll talk about that when we get to the sermon review. But this is a sermon y'all need to hear. This is kind of this is also building. This is the next step, building off of what we heard in yesterday's light edition of Fighting for the Faith. So you don't want to miss that. It's a fantastic, ridiculously good, gospel-centered, amazingly great. Sermon, so you you want to hear that, uh, uh, Doctor Albert Muller, and he's going to be preaching on the on the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. So uh, we're going to be doing that today. So we still got uh, some more to do, and now that we've got the the more interesting stuff uh, <clears throat> uh, out of the way, so uh, with that, let's uh, continue on from the CNN. Well, actually, no, from the Huffington Post. From the, I'm going Huffington Post for the headline reads: Obama's faith-based advisors round two. By Adele M. Banks, who's from the Religion uh, News Service, we read, uh, Washington, President Obama has named top U.S. church leaders to an advisory council on faith-based programs. Uh, but the list is of, of appointments is, dry, is also drawing questions about a lack of diversity from minority faiths. <laughs> I'm not concerned about diversity here. I'm concerned about heresy. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, apparently there's a lack of diversity upon yeah, with uh, President Barack Obama's faith-based advisory council. Yeah, no, there, there's a there's a lack of Christianity in period in uh, Obama's advisory council. But let me continue. The twelve names released late Friday. Twelve names. <laughs> Obama picked twelve faith-based advisors. Does that sound at all like Jesus? You know, Jesus had twelve disciples. Ah, yes, uh, the Messiah, Obama, has 12 faiths. <laughs> oh, yeah, you just can't make this stuff up. <sighs> maybe I shouldn't read too much into it. Maybe he was shooting for the 12 tribes of Israel, but then again, so was Jesus with the uh, disciples. 
Yeah, no, this is quite a significant number here. The 12 names released Friday, February 4th, include top officials of prominent organizations from the Episcopal Church to the National Association of Evangelicals to the United Way. The list included no prominent Muslim or Hindu leaders. The White House says the list will be expanded later with 13 additional names. Oh, wow. Now we got the diversity issue taken care of. Whew! Yeah. Um, the Reverend Welton Gaddy, president of the Washington-based Interfaith Alliance, said that he was shocked that the initial names for the panel did not include known leaders outside of the Christian and Jewish faiths. Hey, you just can't you can't win. Apparently, you just can't know. Um, quote: I would I would think that it would have been a priority to have a Muslim leader on there and at least one representative from a non-Abrahamic tradition. He said the White House would not comment on the diversity of the panel but said more names are to come. Yeah, see, I could care. <laughs> when it comes to uh, true versus false religion, diversity is not the key. Yeah, no, it's not. It, no, nope. Yeah, no. <laughs> the statement that, the, that, that makes the rounds, that there are many ways to climb Mount Fuji, does not apply to... Uh, to the truth. Jesus himself, by the way, he warned that broad is the road that leads to destruction. Broad. I mean, you could you might even think of it as a uh, multi-lane paved highway. 10 lanes, 15 lanes. It really 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 broad. It's super easy to get well marked, you know, signs everywhere. Broad is the road that leads to Destruction, yeah, destruction, and narrow, narrow, narrow is the path that leads to life, and few find it. <clears throat> anyway, uh, let me continue reading. Quote, we look forward to uh, announcing the additional members at a later date, at which point the 25 members will begin the process of producing recommendations to improve the government's partnership with faith, faith-based and other nonprofit organizations, said White House spokesman Shin Inoue. Anyway, the new panel... Members include four denominational leaders, presiding Bishop Catherine Jeffords Shorey of the Episcopal Church. <laughs> the, oh, man. The presiding Bishop Mark Hansen of the ELCA. <laughs> oh, man. Greek Orthodox Archbishop Demetrius. The Reverend Nancy Wilson, moderator of the predominantly gay Metropolitan Community Churches. <laughs> <sighs> evangelical leaders include leith anderson that doesn't help yeah no i'm not a big fan of leith either uh president of the national association of evangelical and lynn hybels <laughs> Just, uh, a couple of the druckerites there co-founder uh, with her husband of the of uh of, with of willow creek community church a suburban chicago megachurch oh man yeah, don't you find it kind of interesting that Mark Hansen of the ELCA and Catherine Besh- Catherine Jeff Shorey, you know, it was, yeah. Well, I wonder why he didn't invite Matt Harrison of the LCMS. Just uh, anyway, yeah, there you go. So talk about the blind leading blind. But hey, you know, they have faith that their convoluted faith will uh, not be actually uh, part of that broad multi-lane highway that leads to destruction. But hey, you know, knock yourself out there, Barack Obama. That's just quite, you know, I'm so glad that you were able to scrape the bottom of the barrel there to find your for yourself some of the most 
reprehensible characters in the religious spectrum. Okay, moving along. Um, Jennifer Wright uh, uh, Knust, uh, K-N-U-S-T, I'm messing up her name. Anyway, she has an uh, article at the Belief blog at CNN.com. And uh, let me read a little bit of this. And uh, Dr. Albert Muller will provide the counterpoints, the relevant ones, although I might find myself not able to contain myself and responding on my own. But you know, <laughs> believe me when I tell you, the better uh, the the better rebuttal is not mine. It's Dr. Moeller's. But anyway, um, here we go. Jennifer writes, she says, We often he- uh, hear that Christians have no choice but to regard homosexuality as a sin, that Scripture simply demands it. As a Bible scholar and pastor myself, I say that Scripture does know such thing. Really, really, the Bible isn't clear on these things. Just makes you wonder. Um, yeah, let's take a look at some passages. So, I mean, you know, I just let's. I mean, let's take a look and let's see what you know what the Bible says regarding a few of these things, and uh, let's let's just see if it's vague or unclear. You know, by the way, the uh, the Bible uh, when it in the Old Testament, yeah, it, it, when it talks about. This is put it this way: the Hebrew language is not like the Greek language. The Hebrews use word pictures a lot, and um, so uh, with that in mind, let's um, let's read some of the things that the Bible talks about regarding these things. Here we go. If you have your Bible, flip on over to Leviticus chapter twenty. Leviticus chapter twenty, verse thirteen. Okay, here we go. Are you ready? Let's just read the text. If a man lies with a man as one lies with a woman, both of them have done what is detestable. They must be put to death. Their blood will be on their own heads. Now, the the um, <clears throat> Hebrew word there, the, the verb, by the way, if a man lies with a man as one lies with a woman is um the uh, Hebrew word uh, shakab and um it you know it, it's a euphemism word that has to do with well sexual intercourse that's what the word is about to lie down with somebody um we we have a similar uh word in the English language you know when we if you know let's say you've got a friend who isn't a Christian and uh, this friend of yours has met what he thinks is the woman of his dreams while at a bar the other night. And uh, and the two of them went home and slept together. Yeah, that doesn't mean that they, you know, that, you know, what happened is, is that he got in bed and, t- and, and he put her in bed and tucked her in and kissed her forehead and said, sleep well, nighty night, pleasant dreams. Or you know, or anything like that. No, no, it, it, it's a euphemism. Sleeping together means, well, you're not actually sleeping. You, you get what I'm saying. It's a euphemism for intercourse. The same is here. The same is true of the Hebrew language here. If a man lies shakab with a man, as uh, as a man lies with a woman, get it? Both of them have done what is detestable. They must be put to death. There blood will be on their own heads in the hebrew nation in the in the nation state of israel uh, the kingdom of israel during this time um 
the civil law set up by God himself, who was the king of Israel, the true king, according to his laws, if a man lies with a man as one lies with a woman, both of them have done what is detestable, plain and simple. Now, by the way, there is another passage that uh, that talks about this, Leviticus chapter 18, verse 22. Um, where God says, you shall not lie with a male as with a woman, it is an abomination. Does that seem um, confusing to you? Now notice, all I did was read to you the text. I just read it. That's all I did. Just read it. I didn't interpret it. I told you what the verb there is, shakab, what it means. Gave you an example from the English language that we all can relate to. Same thing applies. And if you go back and you look at the greater context of Leviticus chapter 20 or Leviticus 18, this is one of the statements, the statements, the laws given in a series of different laws that pertain to sexual perversity. Also included in this list of things are uh, commands that deal with sleeping with your mother-in-law, sleeping with uh, your daughters or children. I think uh, they're, they're all in the different lists. But the, reality, the, the context here is you know, basically pretty simple. The, this is given in a list of things that you shall not do sexually. God has made it very clear that this is a gift from him, and it is to be exercised according to the commands that he's given and not outside of him. Everything outside of marriage is really outside of God's will for the gift of sex to be exercised with. And that means man and woman. So God here in Leviticus says, if a man lies with, you can say sleeps with, a man as one sleeps with a woman, both of them have done what is detestable. Plain and simple. This is, this is not interpretive. I'm just reading to you the text. It seems pretty clear to me. I mean, does that seem yeah, pretty clear to you? Let, well, yeah, let's see. And, and by the way, the, uh, the Septuagint here, the Greek translation of this uh, of this passage. This is where we get the the uh, the Greek word that Paul uses in his epistles. Arsenikoites means man better. Okay, you take <laughs> see if a man lies with a man. Okay, the, Paul tra- you know the the Septuagint translates that if a man beds another man. Arsenikoites got it. That's where we get the phrase from. This is really simple. It's pretty clear. Yet according to Bible scholar and pastor, I mean, sorry, pastrix, Jennifer Wright Kunst, um, she says that um, that uh, the Bible, uh, let me, let me read. she says, we often hear that Christians have no choice but to regard homosexuality as a sin. This is sin. The scripture simply demands it. A Bible scholar, as a Bible scholar and pastor myself, I say the, that the scripture does no such thing. Quote, I love gay people, but the Bible forces me uh but the Bible forces me to condemn them is a poor excuse that attempts to avoid accountability by wrapping a very particular and narrow interpretation of a few Bible passages in a cloak of divinely inspired respectability. Yeah, that that's a that's a really nice um uh obfuscation. That's some really nice sophistry, Jennifer. But when you go back and you read the passages Again, I didn't do any interpretive work. I just read it to you and made it clear based upon the words used what's really going on there. God's, God really is um, 
really, 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 really clear on these things. This is not um, uh, this is not vague. God is not, um, you know, well, whatever. Anyway, she says, here's what she says. Truth is, Scripture can be interpreted in any number of ways. Yeah, no, 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 no. Um, the truth, Jennifer, is is that how, however many interpretations people can fancifully come up with vis-a-vis postmodernism, that's not the issue. The issue is, what did the Holy Spirit convey? What was communicated? What did the Holy Spirit intend for us to understand? It's not a matter of, well, this person has that interpretation, this person has that interpretation, this person has that interpretation. Yeah, the the phrase uh, or the, the idea of what does this mean to you, poppycock, it's absolute gibberish. No, the issue is, what did the Holy Spirit intend to convey? So when we go to Leviticus chapter 20, okay, 20 verse, let me read it again. <clears throat> If a man lies with, <clears throat> sleeps with a man as one lies with a woman, both of them have done what is detestable. They must be put to death. Their blood will be on their own heads. Okay, plain and simple. All right, so they've done something detestable. You can't do it. Um, so here's the deal. The Marxist, the, here's a Marxist interpretation. The Marxist interpretation, and not what we really mean here. Uh, the, 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 what's really going on in these passages is this, this idea that, um, that, that one man, he's bourgeois, and the other, he's proletariat. And, and see, what happens is this idea of lies with one man and the other. This is the idea of, of domination, of, 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 of the capitalist pigs uh, dominating and, and taking advantage of the, the poor working class. You see, that's what's really going on here. See, there's the Marxist interpretation, right? Okay. Now, the feminist interpretation would basically go like this. Now, if a man lies with a man as one lies with a woman. Now, see, exactly. See, this is what's going on here. See, what we're talking about here, we're not talking about, you know, um, you know, sleeping with somebody. What's really going on here is this has to do with a male-dominated society. And so this idea behind, the, uh, you know, this is what, what God's really getting at in this passage here is we're trying to get rid of this male-dominated society and 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 get women out from under men. Yeah, see, that's what's going on. So what we're dealing with here is this idea of one man treating another man like he's chattel, like uh, like he's lesser or subservient. And so that's what's really going on here. Because, see, you know, this isn't about sex at all. This is about something else. You know, you, you, those are two different interpretations, the Marxist interpretation, the feminist interpretation. And not neither one of those interpretations have any uh, touchstone whatsoever because uh, uh, with reality, because the issue is, what does the text say? What did the Holy Spirit intend to convey? And the Holy Spirit didn't have Marxism or feminism in mind, or any of your fanciful interpretations, or your little word games that you play. It's real simple. If a man lies, shakav, with a man as one shakav, with a woman, both of them have done what is detestable. That frames the rest of the conversation, because when Paul says in his epistles to the Corinthians that homosexuals will not inherit the kingdom of God, he's using language directly out of the Septuagint's translation of Leviticus chapter 20. Arsenokoites, man better, is the translation used in the Septuagint, to translate Leviticus 20. If a man beds another man as one beds a woman, 
that's what's going on. This is not a matter of interpretation. The issue is what did the Holy Spirit content, intend to convey? So here we've got this gal. She says, truth is, Scripture can be interpreted in any number of ways, and, and biblical writers held a much more complicated view of human sexuality than contemporary debates uh, have acknowledged. In Genesis, for example, oh, the, really? Okay. It, it would seem that God, God's original intention for humanity was androgyny. Really? You, you got this out of the, the text of Genesis, that God intended for people to be androgynous. He says, androgyny, not sexual differentiation and heterosexuality. Genesis includes two versions of God's story of creation of the human person. First, God created humanity male and female. Then God forms the human person again. This time in the Garden of Eden, the second human person is given the name Adam, and the female is formed from his rib. Ancient Christians and Jews explain this two-step creation by imagining the imagination that the first human person possessed the genitalia of both sexes. But when the androgynous, duly sexed person was placed in the garden, she, he was divided in two. Yeah, that's funny. The uh, biblical text says nothing of the sort. And by the way, uh, the Genesis doesn't cr- have two creation accounts in it. Very simple. Have you ever written a, uh, a thesis? Have you ever written a, a term paper? Okay, you're, you're, If you have ever written a term paper or a college-level paper, your professor would say something to the effect of, now, if this is your first time writing these, let me tell you what I expect. I want you in your first paragraph to explain to me succinctly what your thesis is and, and give me just a brief summary of what it is that you're going to tell me in your paper. Then after you've told me what you're going to tell me in your paper, I then want you to tell it to me. And then at the end of your thing, what I want you to do is I want you to then conclude by telling me what you told me. So here in the United States of America, when you go to college or you're in high school and you learn how to write a term paper, it begins with a thesis summary statement saying what you're going to say. Then the, the next, the body of the term paper then is says what you, is you telling what you said you were going to say, and the conclusion is reminding him what you said you were going to say and, and what you said. The end. Genesis kind of follows a similar pattern. If you read the Genesis account, you've got a summary of the creation, the first telling of the creation story. Kind of a broad, sweeping, you know, 10,000-foot level view. We're flying over the creation account, and we're looking down so that you can see the big picture, right? This is your summary. This is your thesis statement, if you would. And then the next time through, we zoom down, zoom down. Yeah, I think Katie Sousa has gotten to me. You zoom down and you get into more of the detail of the thing. It's not two different creations account, creation accounts. It's just a storytelling method, telling you what, what we're going to talk about and then zooming down and giving you the details of the story. Yeah. Um yeah, this is just ridiculous. Uh, liberals will go to, you know, let's just say they have no shame in their creativity and in their imaginative uh, efforts to get around what the clear biblical text says. To that uh, end, let me read to you what Dr. Albert Muller wrote regarding this particular blog post. Um he this is uh, from the uh most recent Christian Post. The headline reads, "What the Bible really says about sex." Really? Has the church misunderstood the Bible's teaching on sexuality for over 2,000 years? The current issue of Newsweek magazine reports on new scholarship 
on the good book's naughty bits that is supposed to turn our understanding of the Bible's teaching on uh, on sex upside down. Lisa Miller, Newsweek's religion editor, wrote the article entitled, What's the Bible Really Say About Sex? Well, the one thing you need to know up front is that the article is far too short of its title. Miller bases her report on two recent books, Michael Coogan's God and Sex and What the Bible Really Says by Jennifer Wright Kunst, Unprotected Text, The Bible's Surprising Contradictions About Sex and Desire. Neither of these books breaks new ground. Instead, the books dis- books distill arguments that have become common among liberal and revisionist Bible scholars and homosexual activist groups. Now, notice Albert Muller is actually going after Kunst's book itself, not just the blog post. Uh, Coogan, trained as a Jesuit priest, has served as editor of the Oxford Annotated Bible, a favorite study Bible among theological liberals. He currently serves as the director for publications for the Harvard Semitic Museum. In God and Sex, Coogan argues that the biblical commendations, uh, uh, condemnations of various sexual behaviors and relationships should not be considered normative for today. Hmm, okay. In his words, the biblical texts on sexuality reflect the superstitions and prejudices and, and the ideas and ideals of their authors. Yeah, see, the problem with the Levitical text is that that was actually dictated by God to Moses. Anyway, he argues that uh, that we should not be bound by those same prejudices. Ah, oh, yeah. See, the the reason why Leviticus has that those little sections about you know, you shouldn't bet a guy the way you bet a girl, um, apparently that was all because, well, Moses was, well, he grew up in Egypt, and everybody knows ancient Egyptians were homophobes. You know, that's the, mm-hmm, right. We continue. He rejects outright the belief that the Bible is in any objective sense the Word of God. The Guild of Academic Bible Scholars has adopted a liberal approach to the Bible. He affirms that the real problem is that the great multitude of churchgoers have not joined the scholars in his liberal approach. Coogan's, uh, Coogan laments the fact that, we, that, quote, we have not succeeded in changing the way most non-specialists and even many in the clergy think about the Bible. Instead, people still maintain that the Bible is God's Word. Plain and simple, that God is the author of the Scripture. Yes, that's the problem. Yeah, once you once you no longer believe the Bible is the Word of God, then you don't have to have. Yeah, ex- again, my point, my <clears throat> quip to this is that Jesus thought the uh, Old Testament was the Word of God, and he promised the disciples that he would give them, you know, well, really good recall when it come to them came to them writing about his accounts. And so as a result of it, you know, Jesus put a stamp of approval on the Bible and said that it was the Word of God. And uh, and he acted like it was like totally true. So since he died and rose again from the dead, proving that he's actually God in human flesh, I think it's kind of silly to go against um, Jesus, don't you? Anyway, <clears throat> yes, Dr. Coogan, people still maintain that belief. I do. <clears throat> Jesus did. To his credit, Coogan does not argue dishonestly. He's straightforward in presenting his rendering of the key biblical text for his main point is that the church is not bound by the presuppositions and prejudices of those texts. See, it's not that those texts actually convey what God intended, because the, the, those texts don't contain the Word of God, and instead, the reason why Moses wrote that is because he was a homophobe. Got it. Okay, so Jennifer Wright Kunst uh, follows a very different game plan in unprotected texts, though she shares Coogan's rejection of biblical interpretation. Kunst also teaches religion at Boston University, bases her revisionism on the claim that the Bible simply lacks any consistent sexual ethic. 
Quote, the Bible is not only contradictory, but it's complex, she insists. Some part of the Bible, uh, some parts of the Bible promote view, uh, points of view that, from a modern perspective anyway, are patently immoral. An ordained American Baptist pastor <clears throat> argues that the Bible is so contradictory that when it comes to sexual matters, we cannot gain any consistent sexual ethic from its pages. Her agenda is clear from the start. She wants to overthrow the normative authority of the Bible on matters of sexual morality. Lisa Miller summarizes the arguments in, uh, of Kugans and Kunst by explaining that they are each attempting to, quote, steal the conversations about sex and the Bible back from the religious right. Putting the two books together, Miller explains that they argue along these lines. First, that the Bible is an ancient text inapplicable in its particulars to the modern world. Second, that sex in the Bible is sometimes hidden. Third, that... That that which is forbidden is also allowed, and fourth, that the accepted interpretations are sometimes wrong. Well, one immediate problem with this set of arguments is that uh, they are themselves contradictory. Is the Bible itself wrong or just its interpretations? If the Bible is just an ancient text, which is not relevant in its particulars for the modern world, why argue over its interpretation? They need to get their story straight. Kunst and Kugan cannot even agree when it comes to the particulars. Kunst claims that that King David enjoyed sexual satisfaction while Jonathan and uh, with Jonathan, yuck, and uh, that this thus serves as evidence of an authorized homosexual relationship within Scripture. Again, to his credit, Kugan is too careful of a scholar to go with that kind of argument. David and Jonathan were covenant partners, he argues, but despite the claims of some gay activists, they were not sexual partners. Apparently, Kunst and Kugan. Uh, um, uh, can't seem to get their facts straight. Uh, Lisa Miller notes that Coogan and Kunst are hardly uh, the first scholars to offer alternative readings of the Bible's teaching on sex. As a matter of fact, almost all of the arguments made in these books have been around for the past 30 years. Miller argues that it is the populism of these books that sets them apart. With provocative titles and mainstream publishing houses, they obviously hope to sell books, she explains, but their greater cause is a fight against official interpretations. In response to that, Lisa Miller quotes me. That would be Dr. Albert Muller. Uh, that, that's why Albert Muller, president of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, that citadel of Christian conservatism, concludes that one's Bible reading must be overseen by the proper authorities. I enjoyed my conversation with Ms. Miller, but my point was not that the church needs proper authorities, but that any interpretation of the Bible will not do. The authority is the issue. Is this the authority in this issue? Is that that of the Bible itself? Those who read it as bearing the very authority of God will read the Bible quite differently than those who see it as a human book, uh, conditioned and warped by human frailty and fallibility. The most important point I made to Lisa Miller is that rele- uh, revisionist interpretations or interpreters of the Bible are playing a dishonest game. Consider the audacity of their claim. They claim that no one has rightly understood the Bible for over 2,000 years. No Jewish or Christian interpreter of the Bible had ever suggested the relationship between David and Jonathan was a homosexual relationship, at least not until recent decades. The revisionist case is equally ludicrous across the board. We are only now able to understand what Paul was talking about in Romans 1. The church was wrong for two millennia. I have far greater respect for the intellectual integrity of the scholar who reads the Bible and interprets it honestly, but then rejects it with candor. This is far superior to evasive and clever attempts to make the Bible say what it plainly does not say. The Bible is brutally honest about human sinfulness in all of its forms, including 
sexuality. Nevertheless, the Bible presents a the Bible presents a consistent and clear sexual ethic. The issue is not lack of clarity. The real problem here is not that the Bible is misunderstood and in need of revision. To the contrary, the real problem is that the ethic revealed in the Bible is both rejected and reviled. Touche. Brilliant point. Thank you, Dr. Muller. In fact, talking about Dr. Muller, we're going to be reviewing a sermon by Dr. Muller in just a couple of minutes. Now, if you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter, my name there, Pirate Christian. We'll be right back. Sissioprified religiosity won't save you. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. This is the air I breathe. This is the air I breathe. I've had enough. Of this sissy, pansy, cunning, photo-written music you have the audacity to call worship. Men, put this entire girly praise band in the boo box. Let's wheel in the organ and get some real worship music underway. Ye be listening to Pirate Christian Radio. Keep more of your money in your pocket. Hi, Chris Roseborough here. If you're planning to travel anytime in the near future, then don't pay more for airfare, hotel rooms, or rental cars than you need to. Longtime Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheap O Air can save you a Tijuana taxi load of money on all of your travel needs. Plus, Cheap O Air has a seasonal promotional code for all of our listeners that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheap O Air's already low prices. Visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, and then click on the banner and then book your travel today. Again, that's piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. All right, we're back. Hour number two of Fighting for the Faith. Good sermon today. One that needs to be heard. And boy, I have to apologize ahead of time because I'm going to be interrupting the sermon, and it's a good one. Oh, please forgive my intrusions on this amazing sermon. Let's cue up the music.
good, the bad, and the ugly. We review it all here at Fighting for the Faith. We are an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service. Today's sermon comes to us via Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, sermon preached by the Reverend Albert Muller. The sermon was delivered on Reformation Sunday of 2010. Going, Reformation Sunday? Roseboro, what are you doing? We're in Epiphany. We're getting ready for Lent, and you're going to... Yeah, I know. I apologize, but I think that a clear exposition of the gospel is called for every single Sunday. And there's so much to this particular sermon that is worth studying and paying attention to that the, the list is too long for me to even unpack it. Number one, if you're looking for meaningful Christianity, this is it. And what I mean by that is, is that this sermon centers on the very thing that needs to be heard by Christians Sunday after Sunday. If you're looking for a perfect example, and I, this is flawless, a good example of how a, a master exegete uses Scripture to interpret Scripture, then th- this, this sermon has it in spades. Do you want to hear a good, proper balance between law and gospel? The law used to convict hearers of their sin. And the gospel to comfort us and to provide us with hope. Then this is the sermon. I'll point out some other things along the way just to highlight it. And again, I apologize. I am so sorry that I'm going to be interrupting the sermon and pointing things out. Forgive me. Let's kill the music. (laughs) Oh, man. Without any further ado, here is the Reverend Dr. Albert Muller. The name of the sermon Justified by Faith Alone, Reformation Faith, and Theological Humility. Here's Dr. Muller. This past Sunday, recognized by many churches and denominations as Reformation Sunday. Sadly, there were many churches that went scurrying about to find Reformation texts, and many pastors who went seeking Reformation messages, thinking about the Reformation only on Reformation Sunday. The reality is that our cause of celebration in this day and in this season is not just historic commemoration. It's the recognition that nothing less than the gospel is at stake. We really do not serve the church well if we think of the Reformation as a a great theological debate or dispute. We know that it was that, but of course it was far more than that. We we do not serve the gospel well if we we treat the Reformation as if it were the, the time of the birth, the historical origin of our chosen tribe, theologically speaking. The only way to really understand what's at stake The only way to really understand why there's cause to celebrate is to recognize that the issue is the question, what is the gospel? How is it that any sinner can be received and accepted by a holy God? 
You know the story of Luther's Unfechtigen, those fits into which he was thrown, these fits of his own unworthiness, these fits, monkish fits that Luther experienced because Luther had a straight forward, first-hand knowledge of the fact that there was nothing in him to commend him to his Creator. Luther wasn't looking for a celebration of Reformation Sunday. Luther was looking for a reason to continue living. The fits into which he threw himself were near suicidal. The understanding of his own unrighteousness, the consciousness of his depravity, the awareness of his sinfulness, these weighed on him so heavily that this young monk could not continue his monkery. Luther himself said, if any monk could be saved by his monkishness, I was he. Okay, I'm going to point something out here. Notice how he set this up. Who's his audience? Seminary students. The theological cream of the crop of the Southern Baptist Church. And the dichotomy that he has set up is an important one. And, the, and it, it was subtle, and you would have missed it maybe, but he'll, he'll, you know, at the beginning, but you'll catch it at the end for sure. L- the Reformation was not, first and foremost, a theological battle, a battle where a superior, an intellectually superior theological system came to the forefront and defeated an inferior theological system. That, that, that's not what the Reformation's about. The Reformation is about the gospel. The primary central question, the only question, is how do sinners stand before a holy and just God. That's the center. And the reality is that's the only question. All the other theological posturing and battling that has taken place has been specifically in order to protect, proclaim, and defend this truth and this truth alone. That men are declared righteous before God, not because of their works, not because of their intellectual prowess, not because of their theological system. But they are declared righteous before God because the wrath of God has been propitiated by Jesus Christ and his shed blood on the cross. And that we have nothing to offer God. Nothing that we can give him, not not our intellect, not our theological system, none of that stuff. That stuff is important, but that's not what justifies us before God. And this is not about a better theological system. Keep that in mind. Keep that in mind as you listen to the rest of the sermon. No amount of monkishness will save. No amount of unmonkishness will save. Luther came to the understanding that he had absolutely no hope. He had absolutely no ground in himself of any hope of salvation. 
He had absolutely no confidence in the flesh, and he was in a moment, spiritually speaking, of absolute despair, which means he was just where God wanted him. I invite you to turn with me to Luke chapter 18. We will hear together the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. Luke writes, beginning in verse 9, he also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed, thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. This is the word of the Lord. We are comforted by this word, and we ought not to be. Not at first, anyway. This is a text that is often misunderstood, misapplied, and at best often lightly understood and lightly misunderstood. What we have here is, first of all, a parable. We, we believe we know what the parables are. We have become accustomed to reading parables, and we know that there are comparison stories. A, a parable is a story that is set alongside a reality such that in understanding the parable, we can then look through the parable and see the reality. It's, a, it's literally a set alongside, a comparison story, and, and we revel in these. We, we, we find gospel in, in the parables because we are accustomed to looking there. We, we understand that Jesus spoke in parables, and we are accustomed to hearing some of His major didactic thrust come through these parables. We, we know these parables. Unfortunately, we we know them sometimes too well, which means we know them not at all. In reality, if the parables don't make you angry, you don't get them. When Jesus told the parables, they made people mad. When Jesus told the parables, they turned the world upside down. And when Jesus told parables, people didn't go away saying, all right, what exactly is the correct exegesis of that parable? What was the point or the moral of that story? They generally left scratching their heads, some feeling strangely affected by grace, and others walking away with an unexpected sense of judgment. New Testament scholars often try to delineate the the parables, to, to categorize the parables, parables of judgment, parables of grace. The problem is every one of the parables, when you look at it closely, it seems to have both judgment and grace in it. How in the world are you going to compare this to mere isolation of, of grace or, or absolute judgment? The, the reality is that that just doesn't work because there's grace in God's judgment and there's judgment in God's grace. The question is, who is the one who's judged? 
Jesus told this parable, and he, he spoke this parable, and we, we think we know what this parable is all about. We, we are accustomed to taking Aesop's fables and saying, well, there's a moral. And so we are raised in Sunday school and in church life in, in standard marquee evangelicalism to think that here's a parable and, and here's its point. And the point of this parable then would be, just as most commentators say, and as many Bibles actually imply by how they identify the parable, this is about a warning that we should be humble in prayer. Should we be humble in prayer? (laughs) Obviously so. Is that what this parable is about? Well, it's not, not about that. It just upon closer look appears to be about so much more. The Jesus Seminar actually likes this parable. You'll recall that the Jesus Seminar is this group of very radical scholars who do not believe that the Bible is in any sense the inspired Word of God. They see it merely as a human artifact, and they, they see a good deal of, of editorial license taken with Jesus, and especially in terms of the direct discourse of the words of Jesus. And so they came out with their own red-letter New Testament. They used beads, you'll recall, in order to vote black the black bead meant Jesus didn't say this. We're confident. The Bible says he says it, but we know this is not something Jesus would have said. And at the other extreme, there is the red bead. The red bead meant this is Jesus, full throttle Jesus. Jesus, the social revolutionary. Jesus, the leader of the peasant rebellion. Jesus, the sarcastic, well, looks like he's got tenure at the local university, sage. And then in between, there's pink. Pink means sounds kind of like Jesus, could have been Jesus, sounds vaguely Jesus-ish. And then gray, we don't think it's Jesus, but we're not absolutely certain that Jesus didn't say this. It just sounds like something that would be more attributed to him than something he said. Well, in this particular parable, verses 9 through 13 are read. They think Jesus said this. Now, why do they think Jesus said this? It's because they read the parable as a social revolution, which they like. That's what they want. They want Jesus the Marxist. Jesus is Che Guevara. They, they want Jesus to say, all right, here's what's going to happen. There's going to be a revolution, and the guys who think they're on top are going to end up on bottom, and the guys who know they're at the bottom, they're going to end up on top. There's the revolution. Viva la revolution. And you look at it and say, I'm not sure that's exactly what made people mad. Matthew chapter 13 The disciples asked Jesus, why do you speak to them in parables? And Jesus said, I speak to them in parables because seeing they do not see and hearing they do not hear, nor do they comprehend. In them, he said, is fulfilled. In the crowd is fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah, that call passage from Isaiah. And Isaiah 6, in which God says to Isaiah, you go, but they're not going to hear you because their hearts have grown dull. With their eyes, they will not see. With their ears, they will not hear. But you go ahead and preach anyway. Well, that's a call. We generally at ordination services don't lean into that part of the text. I'm glad you're called. We're rejoicing in your calling. We hope you have many years of preaching out before you. You are now going to be sent out with the official commission of this church. No one's going to listen to you. You just keep on preaching. We love you, but they're going to reject your message. They, uh, they're not going to hear anything you say. You just keep doing it. Then you recall that Jesus said to the disciples, but blessed are your eyes for they see and your ears for they hear. For truly, I tell you, many prophets and righteous men long to see what you see and did not see it and to hear and did not hear it. So what in the world are we going to do with this parable? Is it a parable of grace? Yes. 
Is it a parable of judgment? Obviously. Everything's in here. Let's look more closely at the parable. It, it begins with the expression, the, the, the narrative that two men went up into the temple to pray. Now, that's not surprising. That's standard fair Judaism. <laughs> that's first century Judaism. That's what you do. Two men in the court of Israel, the men were assembled for prayer. Two men went up into the temple to pray. This is absolutely standard Judaism. Nothing interesting here yet. This is what you do. This is what Jewish men are, are called to do. They, they would be summoned regularly, especially weekly for prayers. They would often gather as they were in Jerusalem near the temple daily for prayers. The court of Israel would regularly be filled with the assembly of the men of Israel there gathered to pray. Two men went up into the temple to pray. Nothing shocking here. And then the next phrase, one, a Pharisee, nothing shocking there. And Jesus himself tells us that the Pharisees hardly missed an opportunity to go to prayer. That's what Pharisees do. The, the Pharisee is there because he is Phariseeing. He is simply doing what the Pharisees believed God wanted them to do, to spend their primary time and attention in prayer in the temple. You would find a Pharisee doing exactly what Jesus said here. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. Now, when Jesus told this parable, the glass had now to be breaking everywhere. This is, this is the fingernails on the chalkboard. It's, it's nothing surprising that a Pharisee would be one of two men going up into the temple to pray. But the tax collector, he doesn't belong there. Tax collectors were the most notorious sinners. In the New Testament, they are often mentioned along with adulterers in terms of shock value and sinfulness. And we look at this because we know about Zacchaeus, we know about Matthew, we've read our New Testaments, and we know that they were lecherous extortioners. That's true. But that was not the main sin on the minds of first century Jews. Their main sin was collusion with the enemy and doing business with the Gentiles such that they violated the law at so many different places that they had no right whatsoever to be found anywhere in the decent company of Israel, much less in the assembly of Israel, in the court of Israel, in the temple. This man is legally disenfranchised from the temple. He doesn't belong there. Someone should stop him from going into the court of Israel, and someone almost surely would. Righteous men were taught, even when they were little boys... When you see a tax collector coming down the street, you cross to the other side of the street. You do not allow your face to meet his. You do not allow your eyes to lock on him. You walk by him, thanking God that you are not he. You have nothing to do with him, nor with those who are his. Two men went up into the temple to pray. Nothing remarkable. First century Judaism, standard fare. The one a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. They pray. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus. Well, this is where we start to develop the wry smile. We who are the trained interpreters of the text, we who are 
familiar with this parable, we who know who we're supposed to be. That's what happens, isn't it? When we come to know the parables, when they have the dichotomy parables, parables like this, where you have the two character parables and there's a good one and a bad one, we know we want to be the good one. We are the good one. We are here because we are not the Pharisees. We are the tax collector. We are here because we know we need grace. We know that already. And when we start to see the Pharisee described, we are comfortable because we are not he. standing by himself. So preachers will get up and say, that's the problem with this Pharisee. You'll see his arrogance. You'll see it. He is standing as he prays. There's the arrogance of a man who thinks he has a right to pray to God. Here's a man who thinks he stands in his own righteousness as he stands for God to pray. Standing in prayer is what Jews did in the first century. And before that, in the temple, it was the customary posture of prayer. This Pharisee is not doing anything that the court of Israel will not be filled with men doing. We have our own evangelical notions of how you pray. You pray with your head bowed and your eyes closed. We're accustomed to hearing at the end of the service, people say, now with every head bowed and every eye closed, God can now do business he could not do with your eyes open (laughs) and your heads unbowed. You will look in vain in the New Testament for that particular suggestion of prayer. Bowing of the heads, yes, that's, that's understood as a matter of humility, but it's not always associated with prayer. Why would the Pharisee stand? Well, it's because the customary posture was with palms extended and face looking upward as the man of Israel would expose himself by his posture to his Creator. The standing is not a position of, of spiritual arrogance. This Pharisee, well, we're inventing things that he hasn't yet even done wrong. When he stands to pray, he's doing what he was taught to do. He does not think of himself as arrogant. He certainly does not think of himself as self-righteous as he stands to pray. There's only one problem, however. There's something in this text that we could pass over too quickly, as is so often the case with the parables. The Pharisee standing, that's not a problem, by himself, that's a problem. There's the problem. He is not standing with the assembly of Israel. He is standing apart. He somehow, for some reason, sees himself apart. And we better find out why he sees himself apart. There's there's something about himself that leads him to believe that he is either a cut above or a cut beneath the assembly. Well, we find out very quickly by his prayer. He prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. Okay, let's be honest. We're really thankful that's in there. And we are because we read a prayer like that and we go, okay, in my worst moments, I have never prayed a prayer like that. I, I, I have never prayed a prayer like that, ever, promise you. My first published words were a prayer published in Home Life magazine of the Southern Baptist Convention. 
I was quotable at age five. At least my mother thought so. She sent into home life a prayer I prayed the day I got home from the first day of school. And when I got home from school and was elated with the whole experience of being in school, and then when I was being put to bed by my parents, my mom came in and we prayed, and I prayed, God, I thank you that I am this big. I got a lot bigger. Um, what I meant then was, I'm thankful that I can go to school because all I wanted to do was to go to school. And now I can go to school. I'm big enough to go to school. And wouldn't you know that I had a mother, just like a Jewish mother, who thought that was so cute, everyone else needed to know about that. And there was some editor in Nashville who must have thought that was really cute. This kid's going to be president of Southern Seminary one day. <laughs> and he printed it with a little picture of my smiling five-year-old face. I thank you, God, that I am this big. Am I humiliated by that? No. I was five. If you heard me pray that now, (laughs) Houston, we have a problem. (laughs) Listen to this Pharisee pray. God, I thank you that I'm not like other men. Now, we know that's not the way you're supposed to pray. We're already offended, aren't you? You're offended. You look offended. I'm offended. The Talmud, by the way, is filled with this kind of prayer. A prayers that men were unembarrassed to pray. He would be unembarrassed to pray this way, and we know that because there are so many surviving prayers in the first century that are just like this. This is the way the Pharisee thought he was supposed to pray. He thought he was supposed to tell God <laughs> that he's grateful. We misread and we malign the Pharisees routinely in our preaching. Okay, now listen to this point. It is so important. Dr. Mueller just threw a bomb into the room. We misread the Pharisees. We don't understand them correctly. Listen to his point. The Pharisees did not deny the need for grace. They didn't. The Pharisaical theology understood that God's grace was the initiating grace in the covenant. The Pharisees did not believe that they didn't need God's grace. They believed that God's grace, they prayed, would be sufficient for them on the day of judgment. Their understanding of God's grace was not that they didn't need it. They knew they needed God's grace. They believed that their confidence would be that if God were merciful to them, God's grace would be sufficient for them by filling what was left empty in their own righteousness. So grace is the thing that covers over the thing that you didn't complete. You're saved by grace, and you're saved by works. This is Catholicism. This is seeker-drivenism. This is Mormonism. In other words, what was lacking in their own righteousness, they knew they could not supply. God would have to supply that. And that's how they understood grace. I do my part, and then God will be merciful and do His part. I will do what I can do, and this is what the Pharisee is seeking to do. God, I'm telling you what I do. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But it does begin with this comparison. I thank you that I'm not like other men. 
Who are these other men? Extortioners, the unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. We know this is wrong. This is Sunday School 101 fail. If indeed we hear our children pray, oh God, we thank you that we are not like other children. Nose pickers. Shoplifters. Test cheaters. We'd be offended by that. We might think it's cute. But we'd be offended by that. We, we would know we've got a grace problem here. We've got a theological problem here. We've got something we're going to have to deal with here. But one of the safe ways we try to read this parable is by assuming that this, this is someone else's temptation. This, this isn't our temptation. We're, we're the grace people. We understand this. We're not the Pharisees. Brothers and sisters, we are the Pharisee. Now watch what he does here. It's beautiful. Turns the law on everybody, including himself. Get ready, here comes the law preached lawfully to condemn and expose your sin. Are you comfortable in saying that you're not the Pharisee and that when you read this, it's that other person, not you? Well, let's see what Dr. Muller says. If we read this parable as if we are one of these two men, we are creating a problem for ourselves, a grace problem, a mercy problem, a theological problem, because we are the Pharisee. We enter this picture as the Pharisee, whether we recognize it or not. I was getting ready to preach this text Sunday morning in Washington, D.C. I was sitting in the breakfast room of the Mayflower Hotel, getting ready to go preach this text. And I looked around at everybody else. Clearly, our party was the only group going to church. Here it is Sunday morning. We looked like we were headed to church. No one else in that breakfast room looked like they were headed for church. (laughs) Guess we know who the Christian people are. It just comes so naturally to us. I'm sitting here in the breakfast room of a hotel realizing I'm about to preach a text that just indicted me. And white bread Protestants, as we're known, you know, the the evangelical culture of which we are a part, it's rife with this. We're actually encouraged to think this way. We're the grace people, remember? So act like it, look like it. Make sure everyone that sees you knows by your behavior and what you do and do not do that you are God's people. And we know that's not exactly wrong. We know that it's, in one sense, exactly right. The problem is that we immediately fall into patterns of thinking that we are accomplishing this. We, we are necessarily, just given our fallenness, then into a calculus in which we see ourselves as uh, showing more grace than the next guy. We can't get out of the Pharisee conundrum. Not by ourselves. There's nothing that can get us out of this. This Pharisee is doing what Pharisees do. And the Pharisees were not seeking to be self-righteous figures of contempt. They were seeking to be models to other Jews of how they could show godliness. This prayer is completely understandable. No one who heard Jesus tell this parable would fail to understand this is exactly how you would expect a Pharisee to pray. I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers. We are thankful for that, aren't we? Oh, we know how to say things. We know how to say, by the grace and mercy of God, 
there, but by the grace of God, go I. The problem is we usually don't believe that. When, when we see someone in a notorious sin, there, but by the grace of God, go I. You don't, you don't believe that. Your grandmother would be embarrassed. Your, your friends would be heartbroken. Your home church would, would be ashamed. Let me tell you, I think we are at ground zero. I mean at Southern Seminary. I think we are at ground zero for this temptation. And I think the inner Pharisee in each one of us wants to say, we must be really special. Look where we are. All those other people out there going to other schools because when they graduate, they can make a lot of money. Not why we're here. We're holier than that. We, we must be God's favorite people because we're called. God saw something in us that led him to call us. And we fall into this pattern of thinking that we know who we are. And we define ourselves, even in our arrogance, as the wrong person in the parable. And prove the point. There is another man who went up in the temple to pray. This is the man who doesn't belong there. The man who some righteous Jewish man should have prevented from entering into this place. He knows he does not belong in the court of Israel. He is not standing with the assembly, not because he thinks he is better than they, but he is standing apart from the assembly because he knows he is not worthy. The tax collector standing far off would not even lift his eyes to heaven. Now, again, that doesn't mean that he was bowing his head so that it would look good on a Thanksgiving portrait. It means he was unwilling to lift his eyes, to lift his face, and to open his palms in the traditional posture of prayer because he knew he could not bear the judgment of God. He felt the judgment of God in such a massive condemnation of himself that he dared not look heavenward. He would not lift his face because he could not bear the judgment of God that he felt even as he might set his face to heaven. He would not even lift his eyes to heaven, but he beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. His prayer is very simple and straightforward. It is an unadorned, undecorated prayer for mercy. It is not a comparison statement. His comparison statement is in his posture, his unwillingness to stand with the assembly of Israel because he knows he is not worthy to be there. He doesn't belong in the temple. He is an imposter. He is an intruder. He is a trespasser in the real estate of God. But he's drawn there because he doesn't know where else to go. He's drawn there because he's actually drawn to the judgment of God. He knows who he is, a sinner. And he is drawn there even as he is drawn to that judgment because the one who makes that judgment is the only one who can extend mercy. He has no purchase on that mercy. He has no presumption about this mercy. 
He just has the straightforward acknowledgement of his absolute, unconditional, abject need for this mercy. The only thing he knows about himself is that he is a sinner. Okay. Pause there for a second. Let that sink in for a second. The tax collector cannot look up to heaven. He is separate because he knows he's not worthy. The only thing he knows is that he is a sinner. Now, I apologize profusely for what I'm about to do, but you need to hear something in stark contrast to this truth, to the exegesis that Dr. Muller is doing right now in this text, and he is beautifully exegeting this parable and properly handling God's text and dealing with law and gospel correctly. Now, I want you to hear this in stark contrast to what Dr. Moeller's preaching. Here we go. Now, the third thing the Bible teaches is that God promises and actually even guarantees that he will bless your life if, and here's the big condition, if you do what he says. The promises of God and the blessings of God in your life are not automatic. They are conditional. Would you write this down? Every promise has a premise. Every promise has a premise. There are over 7,000 promises in the Bible where God says, if you do this, I will do this. If you confess your sins, I will forgive you. If you call upon me, I will save you. Uh, If you obey me, I will bless you. There are over 7,000 promises, and every promise has a condition. Now, God isn't waiting, or you're not waiting on God. God's waiting on you to fulfill the conditions so he can bless your life in ways you've never imagined. In the next 10 years, I want you to be in such a position, and that's what Decade of Destiny is all about, so that God can bless you. You've got to get blessable so God can bless you. The Bible says that right now, God has already stored up the blessings he has for you in the next 10 years. He already wants to give them to you. They're already stored up. He's already planned what he wants to give, but they're not automatic. And you can go the whole next 10 years and not get a one of them. Because there's a condition, there's a premise for every promise. Plain and simple. Is Dr. Albert Muller preaching the same gospel that Rick Warren preaches? Based on what you heard? Based on other things we've covered here? Is that the same gospel? I'm not saying this or asking the question because I want you to think, oh, Chris has intellectually come up with a superior system and he's intellectually defeated Rick Warren. Eh, That's not my motivation at all. I fear that those who are listening to the teaching of Rick Warren and these seeker-driven preachers are not hearing the same gospel that Dr. Moeller is preaching. And I believe Dr. Moeller is preaching the biblical gospel. I fear 
for those who are attending churches that are hearing this kind of preaching, that they're not being taught to see, like Dr. Albert Muller has so wonderfully done, taught me and you to see ourselves as those Pharisees, as that Pharisee. Only then can we see really what's going on with that tax collector and how it's the gospel that is at play here, and it's the gospel that is at stake here. We continue. This is not even Isaiah's prayer in Isaiah 6. Lord, I am a man of unclean lips, and I live, I dwell amidst the people of unclean lips. He's not even concerned with the people of unclean lips. He just knows his own sin, and he prays. Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. Now, the Jesus Seminar thinks that the the parable is great because what comes next is the great reversal. Jesus says, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. This is an explosive divine verdict. The gospel is found in this verse. If we stopped in the preceding verse, we would stop short of the gospel. There would be no gospel there. There would simply be the story, the narrative about this Pharisee who prays and this tax collector who prays. And if it were an open-ended question, the only available theology would be that both men would simply have to trust the grace and mercy of God. And we would presume that if indeed the grace and mercy of God are demonstrated in such a way that they fulfill what is lacking in us, then the Pharisee has much less lack than does this tax collector. And on the day of judgment, the Pharisee, who not would presume upon the grace of God, but would hope for the grace of God, doesn't have to hope for much, not compared to this tax collector who has to hope for everything. If we didn't have verse 14, if we didn't have verse... Did you catch that? The The tax collector has to hope for everything. He has nothing to offer God. He has to hope for everything from God. When you preach the law of God correctly, you bring people to that point where they realize they've got nothing and they must, like this tax collector, throw themselves completely at the mercy of God and, like the tax collector, hope, hope for everything. Not some things, but everything. Everything. 13, if we didn't have Luke chapter 18, 9 to 14, well, we wouldn't know what comes in this verdict. I tell you, Jesus says, this man, the tax collector, went down to his house justified. He did? How? He he didn't do anything but pray. He he didn't confess anything but his sin. He didn't ask for anything but mercy. Here's the revolution. Here's the gospel. Jesus says that he went down to his house justified. But is this a parable of grace? Of course it is. There's the grace. It's also a parable of judgment rather than the other. Seriously? Seriously? I mean, it's it's revolutionary and explosive enough to know that this tax collector went home, he went to his house justified. That's that's an earth-shaking, glass-breaking theology. But rather than the other, you're kidding me. 
The Pharisee wasn't justified. He wasn't. We have to be very constrained in our imagination, but we're certainly led to follow this narrative in such a way that we would think that this Pharisee went home thinking himself quite justified, safe, inside, affirmed, ready to come back the next time, stand the same way, pray the same prayer. The gospel is here. The gospel is here in ways that we might not detect. In order to understand this text, to understand this tax collector's prayer, we have to understand that there is something almost unique in his prayer. Hey, now listen, this is where the historical grammatical method comes into play. He's going to exegete the original language to point out something to you that you would not know just by reading the English translation, and it makes all the difference in the world. Listen carefully. When the English translations translate his prayer as, God, be merciful to me, a sinner, we can miss something that is essential there. The only other place this verb appears in this form is in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 17. In that passage, just reading, beginning in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14 and following. Now notice, I'm going to point this out too. He's using the Scripture to help interpret the Scripture. Another sound hermeneutical device here. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he, that is Christ himself, likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Verse 17, therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. to make propitiation. That's that's exactly what this tax collector prays. He's praying literally, God, make propitiation to me, a sinner. You know anything about New Testament theology? You know that liberals hate the word propitiation. In the 20th century, one of the most interesting and illuminating movements in New Testament theology was the effort to deny that propitiation means propitiation. C.H. Dodd and his colleagues did their very best to say that propitiation is a foreign and unhelpful category that implies all the wrong things about God. Propitiation should be replaced with expiation. God's mercy is simply His forgiveness of sins. It does not require His justice to be satisfied. The word propitiation gets to that central issue that God's justice has to be satisfied. Somehow, some way, God's justice has to be fully satisfied. Expiation and forgiveness does not require in itself that satisfaction of the divine justice, but propitiation does. 
Propitiation is what was pictured on the Day of Atonement when the high priest entered into the Holy of Holies and sprinkled that blood upon the altar. The altar, the mercy seat, is the propitiation seat. And on the basis of the high priest's ministrations, taking in the blood of this innocent animal, God's wrath was stayed against His people because of their sin for a year. And then again in the next year on the Day of Atonement, into the Holy of Holies, the chief high priest would have to go again carrying the blood of this animal in order to sprinkle the blood upon the mercy seat in order that God's anger and wrath would be propitiated for a year. That's why the grand theme of the book of Hebrews is Christ our great high priest who entered not into the Holy of Holies but into that temple not made with human hands. And he went in as our great high priest not once a year but once for all having achieved all that is necessary for our salvation, taking not the blood of another, but shedding His own blood. You see, the the theologians who want to reject propitiation say that it presents an immoral presentation of God, a God who demands that His own justice be satisfied. Well, that's exactly what it does imply. It's exactly what the Day of Atonement pictured. That is exactly what the gospel requires. It is exactly how the Scripture presents God the Father, and it is exactly why Jesus died. You ask the question about the necessity of the cross, the necessity of the atonement. It is answered in the entirety of Scripture, but it is answered specifically there in that passage From Hebrews chapter 2, therefore it was necessary that Christ do this. This tax collector does not have a theological education, but as Jesus speaks this parable, he puts into this tax collector's voice the absolute necessary prayer of one who knows he has nothing to bring but his sin. God be merciful. God, do what is necessary to propitiate. God, do propitiation to me, a sinner. There's the gospel. He prays that there would be propitiation for a sin. Look with me to Romans chapter 3. It is as if Paul has this parable in mind. Another example, using Scripture to interpret Scripture. This isn't proof texting. This is something completely different. It is as if the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector is right in the foreground as we read beginning Romans chapter 3, verse 21. But now, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. There is no Pharisee and there is no tax collector. There is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. 
Masterfully done. Masterfully done. And are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance, He had passed over former sins. It was to show His righteousness at the present time so that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Well, now we understand the parable. Now we understand how it is that this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. Now we come to understand that the distinctions upon which that parable rests are a distinction that is false theologically, for there is no distinction. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We hear the prayer of this tax collector, God, do propitiation, be propitiated. Be merciful to me, the sinner. And here we are told that God, to His own glory, in order to demonstrate Himself as both just and the justifier, put forth Christ as our propitiation, such that we have forgiveness of sins, such that we may be justified. No flesh will be justified in itself. This is a justification that is ours because of what Christ has done. Christ is our justification. His perfect obedience, His perfect righteousness. These are credited to us, imputed to us as we come to Christ by faith. Right. And it's Christ's imputed righteousness that is given to us as a gift by faith that makes us blessable by God not our obedience. Our prayer has to be the same as the prayer of the tax collector. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. But we pray on the other side of the cross and resurrection, and we pray, God, be propitiated. He has. And the gospel that we get to preach is the gospel that all who believe, all who come to Christ by faith, all who by faith, by grace, pray a prayer such as this, go home to their house justified. And that's not our message for Reformation Sunday. That's the gospel. It's the only gospel there is. Back in Gospel of Luke, I left out a verse. The opening verse was too dangerous for us to read up front. We can read it now. Verse 9, he also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. I left that out because I think our temptation when we hear that before we hear the parable is to say, well, we're going to overhear this because it's not addressed to us. But I think we know it is. Unless by grace we're rescued from this. And we need perpetual, continual rescue. There's a last verse too. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. All kinds of mischief is done with this. 
Is this about the proper posture and attitude for the Christian in worship? Of course it is. In prayer, of course it is, but it's far more than that. We have a very warped understanding of humility. We, we get it early and keep it late. That's how we can be proud of our humility. Many of the most humble men in Scripture, men and women, don't appear very humble, not by our contemporary suburban, middle-class, bourgeois understandings of humility. This was the charge against Luther. It's precisely the charge. At the Diet of Arms, when, when Luther is being indicted, when, when Luther is standing before the Holy Roman Emperor and the assembled church, he is accused of not being humble. He is accused of arrogance and pride. The Pope says the gospel is this. The councils say the gospel is this. The magisterium of the church says the gospel is this. Who are you to say the gospel is something else? Luther says, I'm just a monk with the Bible. Here I stand. I can do no other. God help me. The one who humbles himself will be exalted. But we're warned the one who exalts himself will be humbled. The old charge against Luther was that it was arrogant to stand against tradition and pope and councils. But Luther said, popes and councils err. I stand on Scripture alone. It's the only place I know to stand. In our own time, the charge of an absence of humility comes to us when we believe any definite doctrines. We're told that it's arrogant to believe that, that we know the truth, that we have an ability to discern truth from error, that we know what is right and what is wrong, and that we believe the gospel is something specific such that this is a gospel and that's not the gospel. But it's actually the same equation. It is not arrogant to stand upon Scripture. It is truly humble because we understand we didn't come up with this. We're standing on the authority of Scripture because we got no other place to stand. Right. We stand on the authority of Scripture because we've got nothing else to stand on. Nothing. Go back through the archives of Fighting for the Faith. Tell me how many so-called direct revelations of angels and visions and dreams and anything has been nothing but complete malarkey and shifting sand. When all is said and done, there's only one thing that we can stand on. We've been only given one thing. And it's the only place that I can go to where I can say with certainty that I know that God has spoken. And it's to his word. There isn't any other place to stand. We're here out of desperation. Sola Scriptura is not a motto. It's a necessity. All we've got left. That's the way it is for all the solas. Reformers didn't get in trouble for believing in grace and faith and Scripture in Christ. They got in trouble for that little word, alone. At the end of the day, 
we desperately lean into this divine verdict. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Reformation faith is all about the gospel. And if indeed we know this gospel, we will be humbled by this gospel and humbled by God's grace. And we will be a people who do not speak of Reformation theology arrogantly. We do not press our case as if it is an argument to be won. We do not act as if we have a superior theological system because we are theologically superior. Right. Exactly. We, at the end of the day, confess that we hold these truths and hold cherished these doctrines because we have nothing else. This is the gospel. And it's all of grace. And we better be the people who look like that. Two men went up into the temple to pray. One a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed, Thank you, God. God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Our Father, we come before you daring not to identify ourselves in this parable, but asking that you would identify us. Father, we plead for your mercy, not to fulfill in us what is lacking, for we lack everything. Fathers, we have come to know your grace and mercy through Jesus Christ, our Lord. May we find in you by grace, in him by mercy, the right humility. And may we be struck in the heart every time we read this parable, because we know it is addressed to us. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Amen. I can't add anything more to that. Is this the gospel that you believe? Because this is the only gospel we've got. This is the real good news. Good news for sinners like you who, like that tax collector, have no business being in the temple of God, who, like that tax collector, have no business lifting your eyes to heaven because of the things that you've done, who, like that tax collector, knows that you are guilty, guilty of not loving God with all your heart, guilty of committing the sin of idolatry, guilty of blaspheming God's name, guilty of not loving and honoring your mother and your father, guilty guilty 
of stealing, guilty of bearing false witness, guilty of adultery, guilty of coveting. And I can go on. You have nothing. You have absolutely nothing to offer God. You stand before him as a poor, wretched beggar. Knowing that you need from God not some things to complete your salvation, not the few missing things that you haven't quite accomplished yourself, but knowing that you need everything. Need to remind you, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. If you don't already support this important radio outreach, then please visit our website and support us. The way you do that, go to fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate, the other says join our crew. You know the drill. If you don't already support us, please do. So what'd you think? I'd love to get your feedback. My email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Or you can follow me on Twitter, my name there, Pirate Christian. Until tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen. Amen.